0: This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio.
1: We welcome you to Bite Into It, where we talk computing, technology, the internet, um, all the fun stuff that you should be um, across on a Wednesday night. Um, Tonight um, on the show, uh, I'm joined by Laura Summers. Laura, um, you're looking very zen, cross-legged, ready to go.
2: I'm trying to reclaim my Zen. I spent the whole day talking to people, asking them questions about their feelings, and now I'm just trying to reconnect with myself and, you know, be a little mindful. So, yes, this is, the, this is the Zen moment is I just get to talk about my feelings on air and pretend like no one else exists.
1: It's all about you for the next hour, Laura. Exactly. Uh, I'll be with you also on Warren Davies. Um, we've got a really interesting show coming up tonight. Uh, looking forward to um, sharing your company. Uh, tech platforms are building very large organizations, vast fortunes, um, getting strange ideas, all um, off the back of uh, double and multi-sided platforms. But what this actually means for the average user is, still being understood, uh, particularly by governments and people who work in policy. Um, The Consumer Policy Research Centre is looking at this space and what it means for our privacy and for competition and and so forth. Uh, And CEO uh, Lauren Solomon uh, joins us shortly on the show to have a bit of a chat about that. Uh, Later in the show, we're also looking at how um, data and its interrogation and use um, meets design and services with uh, Nathan Ginch of Greater Than X. Uh, We're looking forward to having a chat with him uh, not too far from now. But before we have those chats, uh, there is a little bit going on. Um, if you were kind of not doing too much on your lunch break today, you might have noticed that there was an outage. Um, mm. Laura, what, what happened there?
2: Well, I, I suppose that's really going to be the, the big story we're in and we don't really know yet. But YouTube was, in fact, down globally for a couple hours today. Um Google now owns YouTube, if you're not um, aware of that. And they, neither Google nor YouTube has really released much information about what exactly happened. But it went down for a couple hours. Some Twitter exploded. There was some very unhappy people. And then it came back. But yeah, we don't really know much more in terms of what happened with their service. Or was there any kind of you know DDoS, some kind of breach, some kind of data hack? Like, of course, the cynical part of my brain goes straight to some malicious behavior. So I'm, mm. I'm waiting in anticipation to to hear what actually was the backstory there
1: mm. uh, quite often when these services go down it's usually one of those two cables off um, california that there's been some kind of interruption to but there's been no suggestion that it was
2: uh, oh yeah uh, the backbone cable yeah 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 well hmm, who knows i mean well mm. i guess we'll, we'll wait in here and hopefully they will be transparent enough to tell us actually what happened
1: Mm-mm. I, I was just mm. feeling very smug that um all of our videos were on vimeo and i was like <laughs> i was feeling um bad at the time when i forked out for that extra service but i'm um, feeling good today that was nice.
2: Well, you'll feel great until Vimeo goes down, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. It's probably not much more stable. Mm. Um,
2: what wh- else is going on? There's um, there's also been a bit of a a bit of a sort of thing coming out of Apple about these encryption laws happening here in Australia?
1: Yeah, I actually didn't pick up on this on the weekend, but um, it came to me uh, earlier in the week. Um, In, a, I guess, a rare show of public protest, Apple has berated the Morrison government's proposed anti-encryption bill, calling it dangerously ambiguous and alarming to every Australian. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if they actually spoke to every Australian about that, but um, uh, I think they're they're kind of... um overreaching a little bit there but the access and assistance bill would see tech companies like apple are compelled to help federal authorities gain access to encrypted communications so um i don't know do you use the um i only noticed it was there not long ago the encrypted version of um, uh, messenger in the uh, Messenger app, you can have those black kind of conversations.
2: I, I use Signal, guys. i great. I'm just not into... Like, if it's not end-to-end encrypted, I'm not on it, or I'm trying not to be on it. Um, mm. it but, yeah, like, it's, it's a good point. There's, like, all these different levels of service for different messaging apps. Some of them are a lot more... Um, well protected and some of them mm. less so and also some of them are tracking your data for things like ad targeting and some of them aren't mm. um, I think this is an interesting stand for Tim Cook I think this is an interesting stand to hear coming out of Apple and I think what they're doing is trying to differentiate themselves from the Facebooks and the Googles of the world and saying like hey we care about your data Here, we mm. care about privacy and like lucky for them it doesn't actually impact their their cost their cost modeling like it doesn't mm. have impact like their, their um, revenue so whereas like obviously Google and Facebook and Everyone who profits from selling your data has to really, like, think hard about how they make money if they stop, if they move away from that platform.
1: Yeah, I, I think there would be a lot of brand damage um, um, if you do have countries like Australia kind of um, opening up backdoors to kind of um, monitoring uh, of these services. I mean, it's, uh,
2: yeah, yeah, obviously. And, like, you know, um, one thing I will say for Apple is that they have really taken the side of the consumer in terms of not wanting to unlock iPhones or... Um, not wanting to sort of say that yes we will roll over and give the government everything it wants when it says it wants access to devices um and i think that's a that's an important stance for them to take and continue to support and we hope that's that's you know like the thing we're seeing in public is also true behind closed doors like there's always a suspicious part of your brain that asks if that's if that's still the case but you know hopefully that is true
1: we'll keep an eye on it. One thing that um, did jump out at me this week as well is, um, I don't know, this just makes me um, queasy thinking about it. Um, Medtronic is a Mm -hmm. maker of uh, medical devices and implants, and they're a manufacturer of um, many um, pacemakers, um, so used by a lot of people out there. Um, They've uh, finally posted a notice this week that it's switching off the software distribution network after researchers found that a hacker could update the pacemaker's software with malicious software that could manipulate the impulses that regulate a patient's heartbeat. Um, So it's not actually the devices themselves that were um, susceptible but um, software being used by um, doctors to track and kind of um, make sure that everything was running correctly Um, but just the idea that someone could kind of either um, hold you to hostage or um, I don't know
2: even there i mean even if you think purely about the reporting ramifications of that you know if you showed a doctor that your heartbeat is highly irregular when it's not they could freak out they could like you know put you under one of those like electronic zappers and try and yeah. restart your heart when you're like actually everything is fine so it's not like there's no damage to be done there even if they're not directly tampering with the device itself mm. yeah things that get implanted are like you the things you want least to be Hacked or tampered with, right? That's pretty horrible to think about.
1: There's 34,000 people um, oh. who were um, potentially um, impacted um, by that, but um, yeah, I haven't I haven't heard any cases of it actually happening. But that seems like a, a dangerous uh, vulnerability there mm. uh, for a lot of people in a very sensitive spot. Um, you got some sad news um, as well.
2: Yeah, we're just going down a dark little rabbit hole this this evening, I'm afraid. Um, but yes, Paul Allen, who was the co-founder um, of Microsoft with Bill Gates, died a couple of days ago. Um, he had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and he was quite young he was only 65 passing away so that's that's a big blow to everyone in the Microsoft ecosystem and um you know from all accounts he was a really lovely guy he really was into sharing his knowledge and I think he was um one of those people who's really like had lots of interest and had a very broad ranging intellect and was really like curious about things so you know good dude
1: fantastic dance moves as well if you recall the windows 95 launch oh,
2: that's right yes he's the guy on that splash screen isn't he if you are not in studio you should just imagine us doing like the elaine dance from seinfeld but even more silly there it is that was the guy yeah that was that guy yeah um, so, yes, um, Vale, Paul Allen, thank you for your contribution to technology.
1: Um, you've got some, um, also some news around Facebook um, and data collection, which uh, we'll be talking about tonight, I guess.
2: Yes, I suppose this is a good good segue into our first chat. Um, so, Facebook recently released a device called The Portal. It's their first entry into the hardware market. It's um, it's basically like a little tablet that's entirely dedicated to having video conferences. And they've done a ton of work to try and like make it super clear that they care about your privacy. and. Mm. They, so, in so far as that they've made it possible for you to like press a button and it literally disconnects the circuit that turns on your microphone and your camera. So they're saying, like, hey, we care about your privacy. We're really, really like focusing on that. And they also said none of the actions, none of the behaviors you do on this will be used in any way like against your, your knowledge. Um, only they kind of just backtracked that. So one of the reporters from Recode, which is an online um, tech information place, had a chat with them and they were like oh actually uh, maybe some of this stuff will be monitored through the messenger platform and well, right now we're not using that to target ads at you. It could potentially happen in the future, but we're not planning to, but it could happen. So they kind of walked it back a bit.
1: Sounds like someone suggested and they went, actually, that's a great idea. Let's put that on the, <laughs> know, put that right? On the roadmap, right?
2: <laughs> I know, totally. Like, oh, maybe we should make some money doing that. How funny. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that's obviously like, when you think about video conferencing, that's metadata. Like, who do you call? How long are you on the call for? Like, mm. if they did things like, um, you know, tone or sentiment analysis, they could find out things like how much you like that person. Person or maybe dislike that person and mm. maybe make inferences about your overall behavior, characteristics, psychographics, etc. So mm. it's not like you know, Facebook already knows a lot about you, probably. So mm. it's not like we really want to have them adding to that rich pot of data.
1: That's true. Um, so
2: yes, that's that's going to be an interesting one, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if we touch on it again um, in our next chat.
1: Uh, if you um, are sitting at home or in traffic indeed, as we uh, often do, uh, if you're on uh, Facebook or Google or on Twitter or on any of these big platforms, um, you may like to pause and think about uh, what you're actually contributing to that platform and um, how that is actually part of a large business model for somebody else. Um, we're now joined on the phone by uh, Lawrence Solomon, who's the CEO of the Consumer Policy Research Centre. And recently in Melbourne, we had um, the annual BAX lecture, which... Um, looked at some of these issues, um, and Lauren was involved in that, but does a lot of work in this space. So um, thanks for joining us, Lauren.
0: No worries. Thanks for having me.
1: So should we be concerned about um, our involvement, our free, easy, um, rather useful involvement with these large platforms? Uh, are we um, thinking about it the wrong way?
0: Well, we clearly get a lot out of them, um, uh, but at the same time, it's probably not also particularly clear to a lot of us about what we're giving up at the same time. Um, and that's certainly what some of our research has found, that Australians really value their privacy, but at the moment they don't really feel like they've got much control um, over what data's being collected and who it's being shared with and what it's being used for.
1: Have you actually met anyone who understands um, or like reads the terms <laughs> and conditions of these platforms when we sign up? I feel it's a frequent thing that you just skip to the tick and you tick it and you download it.
0: Yeah, and I mean, there's not really many options. So our research showed, and we're still working out who the 6% are, but our research showed that 94% of Australians admitted they didn't read all the privacy policies that applied to them um, in the last 12 months. Um, But the vast majority of people, obviously, um, given the fact they're often very lengthy, very complex, um, we just don't have time to do it. I think we saw one study that um, would take 244 hours to read the privacy policies just of the websites that we visit in a year six working weeks for us just to get through those. So I think it really does show that these privacy policies are quite out of date for um, so the current digital age and really aren't aiding comprehension or choice.
1: So you did make a note here that this kind of, the old approach of an 8,000-word privacy policy um, presumed to be providing protection. What, what is that? I, I literally do not read any of these policies ever. So <laughs>
0: that, that one was actually in my health records. So it was, I think, 7,800 um, was the word count on that policy. And so... Wow. Um, You know, I think the thing is, it's very out of date for the amount of um, products and services that we're engaging with these days, and certainly, um, as I said, it's sort of very quite complex, very lengthy, and doesn't really aid any comprehension at all about what's happening with our data.
2: Why do you think it's so difficult for these um, organizations, whether they're bigger businesses or government, to just bullet point it for us, like give us the, the highlights, like why is that so difficult?
0: Yeah, I think that's certainly something we've been arguing for. So really, wherever we're aiming for information disclosure, it should aid comprehension or understanding. And if it doesn't, then we really need to be questioning what we're doing with that. Um, So I guess certainly in the EU, we've seen the introduction of the General Data Protection Regulation, and that's really forced a lot more transparency around what's being collected, who it's being shared with, and and really a big focus on consent um, in a way that we haven't really seen in the Australian market to date.
1: So we we do value our privacy, and I guess if you stopped anyone in the street or surveyed them, you'd say it's it's very important. But we, we don't really act on that. Is there is there a reason that we don't feel we can do something about it, or kind of um, get the ball back in our court, so to speak? Why are we not kind of more empowered? Do you think? Yeah. So I
0: mean, it, again, it comes to I think transparency and choice, and so. 95% of Australians that we surveyed wanted companies to provide options um, so they could opt out of certain types of data being collected or, or shared. Now, there's obviously a natural tension here because some of the services are absolutely free um, and the reality is that there is a big debate going on at the moment about, well, if we remove this data, does that mean it now becomes a paid service and how comfortable are people with that? But ultimately, we need to strike the right balance and at the moment, it's it's it's, it's quite out of whack.
2: Do you think that... um? that there is a possibility for, like, a kind of two-pronged model where people who don't want their data shared could have a paid service and people who are comfortable with it can just get the same thing for free? Like, does that feel like a a realistic business model? Look, I think
0: part of the challenge with that sort of approach, and certainly there is um, definitely opportunities for companies, I think, to compete in this space, but ultimately the people who are possibly most disadvantaged by it are often the ones who um, are the least able to pay for privacy, um, and so the sorts of things we're seeing internationally where uh, vulnerable customers in particular are much more exposed to um, higher priced products, for example, or they might be uh, discriminated against or excluded from certain products and services, um, they're exactly the sorts of people who won't have the money to pay for privacy. So it's, it's a real challenge, I think, with that sort of approach being relied upon.
1: Yeah, it's interesting about the the kind of refinements to algorithms that um, people have been seeking over the past sort of 6 to 12 months. There was sort of um, uh, a big kind of backlash um, from the African-American community about how it was harder to get sort of real estate listings and and tenancies and and so forth just because of the kind of discrimination baked into it, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I I was reading a piece on your site about um, Australians potentially being soft targets for these platforms and that you know sort of um, what would that be four and ten um, couldn't distinguish between a paid advertisement and an organic search yeah. result um, we, we don't we don't understand That's what a recommendation a is and what is sort of paid paid recommendations should, should there be are there things that we should all be doing as kind of good digital citizens to sort of improve our street smarts what, what can we do?
0: Yes, there's certainly kind of a literacy aspect to this. And I guess that comes down to there being much greater awareness campaigns out there about, I guess, how you can take steps to protect your privacy and what options there are. And there certainly are companies out there working hard to provide consumers with those options. But it's just often the case that we don't know where they are or how to access them in the first place. Um, So I just think it's definitely going to take a multi-ponged approach here. Part of it is about education, but I think part of it is absolutely about policy and regulatory reform. Um, because ultimately we're we're really falling behind the EU and certainly California with some of the protections that those uh, jurisdictions have
2: introduced.
1: Has there been any um, instances where Australians have been worse off than um, other um, users of platforms? Do we have any sort of local laws or or any loopholes that have been exploited by by some of these platforms?
0: Look, it's probably beyond our scope of research. The thing I'd probably point to there is... um, Certainly in the EU, there have been added protections for things like the processing of children's data. And that's certainly something we haven't even really started to talk about in Australia in terms of added protections for data sharing that's going on in the economy. Um, And I think it is a really concerning one. And certainly the um, social services groups that we work with have have raised that um, in in quite a few of the consultation processes going on with government at the moment. Um, And and I think that is really a big one for society to work out um, how we deal with children who are ultimately using um, technology from a very, very young age now.
2: Mm. And they're more vulnerable and probably less informed about the choices they're making. So there's more of a duty of care to to help them make choices or even make choices for them that are on the side of privacy as opposed to, like, letting them be vulnerable to these platforms, I guess. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And
0: there's certainly a safety aspect to this as well. Um, mm. You know, I think there's there's ultimately got to be a conversation about there's got to be certain types of data perhaps or um, certain types of data being collected that we just don't feel is acceptable and, and mm. we don't want to actually put um, consumers or children um, at, at that level of risk. And so um, certainly that seems to be an evolving evolving conversation as well.
1: Has there been any um, uh, conversations that you've had with um, with consumers around uh, encryption? You, um, you may not have heard earlier. We we're talking about um, uh, a bill by the Morrison government to, um, I guess, crack encrypted services so um, we could sort of have poke around in there for for any terrorists or people doing the wrong thing. Um, do we do we have strong beliefs about um, encrypted services in Australia? Do, do we know?
0: Our research didn't go into encryption, except to say that, um, I guess, if you're looking at the sorts of information that consumers really don't like being collected or, I guess, shared about them, I mean, it's everything from kind of your phone number to your device ID, your messages, your phone contacts, date of birth, browsing history, location data, your friend networks, all of that data. I mean, the majority of Australians really don't feel comfortable being shared with third parties. Um so um, we haven't had research specifically done on encryption. However, there is mm. a clear preference for um, for privacy to be retained, and I guess there's lots of different ways we can go about that.
1: Do people understand like that's the basic IP of most of these platforms? Like all of that yeah, information platform, yeah. are like the core features of what they're on selling to <laughs> to third I just parties. Don't think-
0: yeah, and I think that's a challenge. People just don't understand. They don't really know what's going on, and and they won't really know what's going on until there is a, a greater focus, I think, to force transparency um, about what data is being collected, uh, who it's being shared with, and what it's being used for. And at the moment, our current regulatory framework doesn't really force that transparency.
2: Hmm. I'm, I wonder, Lauren have you have you sort of put any lens about the? Um, oh, sorry, I'll, I'll contextualise this properly. One of the things that is interesting and different about Australia compared to, say, most of the countries in Europe or in the U.S. is that we don't have a dedicated Bill of Rights and we don't have maybe as strong a sense of, like, civil liberties and civil rights as some of the other countries. Um, Have you considered that sort of part of the zeitgeist when thinking about the way Australians think about their privacy or their data? Yeah,
0: absolutely. So we're having really interesting conversations at the moment um, because – it's an area that really requires all disciplines to come to the table. And so certainly the human rights commission has been out there consulting at the moment, um, on, uh, human rights and technology. And I guess how, um, AI technology and data is actually impacting human rights within that lens. Um, there's certainly, you know, the fundamental right to privacy that we see in other jurisdictions that we don't have in Australia. Um, so we do have a slightly different approach here. Um, and I think certainly, yes, that probably is influencing the extent to which um, – or our approach, I guess, in a policy or a regulatory sense.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: If, um, if you could kind of design your own project for the next six months, mm-hmm. what, what are you really interested in diving into and, and learning about Australians and, and technology?
0: Um, Oh, gosh, what a question. Um, Look, I think probably we're quite interested in um, how you go about forcing transparency and giving people genuine options about what's being collected. And so there's a lot of interesting work going on around how you can design customer interfaces that give them greater control and try and enable it that way and build trust that way. Um, I think the other thing we're quite interested in is the extent to which data is resulting in discriminatory processes and practices when it comes to consumer products and services. Um, And certainly overseas we have seen, um, you know, scores and profiles being developed of individuals and that resulting in them receiving um, different advertisements, different products and services. It's something that's always occurred, I should say, as well. It's just the granularity with which it can now actually be kind of um, executed um, and and quite targeted um, to individuals.
1: There's on uh, on Netflix at the moment. There's a great show called Maniac, where in in the future you can kind of um, get credits with Ad Buddy, and and Mm. Ad Buddy comes and sits next to you and starts reading ads um, Mm. like a real person face to face. I thought that was quite cute. It's
2: such a creepy dystopian idea, (laughs) but it's also very Uh, Black Mirror, right? I've seen some similar things in Black Mirror where you're in a box and you like you know you get benefits from watching ads 24 seven. Yeah. It's creepy It's a
0: challenge between, you know, what's the incentives here, what's the underlying business model, and Mm. is that something we really want to be enabling? In a lot of cases, we might. There's a lot of good that can come from it. Um, And certainly empowering consumers with um, some of their data, so the the steps taken to actually give consumers access to more of the data um, and empower them to to use it in ways that could perhaps give them, you know, better comparisons of products and services and those sorts of things can be useful. Um, But certainly, yeah, I mean, you know, you, you head off kind of into... The, the possibilities that we've obviously seen coming out of China with social credit scores and those sorts of things as well, which obviously I'm not saying is, is going to happen in Australia, but certainly we are seeing in other jurisdictions some pretty creepy things happen. Mm.
1: <laughs> if you are concerned about this or if it's really important, we've, we've got kind of an election coming up in Victoria in not too long and the federal election kind of early next year. What, what should people be doing if they, want, um, if they want it to be part of our kind of civic discourse?
0: Um, Look, I think obviously, you know, getting online and joining conversations wherever you can is a good thing. I mean, I think also um, we're we're probably going to try and do a bit more research to to better understand the extent to which people, um, you know, are really... Uh, I guess struggling with privacy policies and I guess to some extent the the, the sense that they are a bit absurd so obviously people sharing stories about perhaps the length and complexity and uh, uh, nature of those things I think is quite useful. Um, Ultimately most of our discussions have been that you know we really need to start having a conversation about economy-wide protections um, when it comes to data collection sharing and these practices in Australia Um, and it's about sort of bringing our regulatory framework in line with the digital age and, and in with some of the international standards as well. So um, certainly it's something that I think, you know, hasn't really attracted a lot of the attention of the public because, um, as we just discussed, it's not really transparent um, and so it's really, I guess, incumbent upon all of us to start raising, you know, concerns where we see appropriate um, and start actually having this conversation about, you know, uh, do we have innovation and technology that's actually in line with our community values? Because at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. Um, technology isn't neutral. You have to make an active choice about the way it impacts society and, and, and the environment in which it, within which it's deployed. So it's kind of incumbent upon all of us to, to, to take a bit more of an active role, I think, in in understanding this and saying what we think is okay and is not okay.
1: It's interesting. I think we'll try and um, see what um, policies come forward um, around this um, in in the coming elections. But, um, Lauren, thank you so much for for joining us tonight on the show uh, and having a chat about it.
0: No, thanks for having me.
1: Hey, butt Into It is where you're at on Wednesday night with Laura and Warren, and we're having a bit of a data-heavy show tonight, um, which is fine. Uh, we're into that. Uh, we're now joined in studio by Nathan Ginch, who is um, uh, one of the people at Greater Than X, um, who do all kinds of stuff, um, I guess, at the intersection of data design and um, technology. It sounds like an intro to a TED Talk, but... I'm sure he'll be okay with that. Nathan, thanks for coming in.
3: Pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: Uh, so, Greater Than X, um, good kind of data reference there. Um, what What is your kind of um, core thing that you do with data? Why do you love data?
3: Well, we were sort of founded on this belief that the organisations that were closest to their customers would be the organisations that would deliver the most value. And with the way that the world's working People are gaining more control over their data. We've had Lauren before talking about the General Data Protection Regulation and things like that. The organisations who gain access to this data are going to be the ones who are most trusted. And at the moment, not too many organisations are doing a good job of that. So we we help them navigate the complexity of the personal information economy, what is trustworthy, what isn't trustworthy, what's socially preferable, etc., etc., so that they can evolve the way that they think and the way that they work uh, and ideally deliver inherently trustworthy products and services to their customers.
1: Do you think people would kind of look at uh, an organisation and say they have a a certain standard or they have particular values around this, so I'll I'll take my data to those people? Is that something that will... Look,
3: if all things were equal, sure, but unfortunately at the moment, most of the products and services that we rely on very heavily on a daily basis, great products and services, not having a crack at them, but by design they're taking advantage of our digital identities and our digital profiles and so until something better comes along that's also privacy preserving and we're starting to see the early stages of that i don't think we're going to see a monumental shift i think it's going to be more iterative
1: Hmm.
2: um you, you've done some writing on this topic, like this idea of trust by design and like thinking about baking it in from the beginning. And I'm, I'm curious about this graph I'm seeing in there, which is the data trust gap, which just to give you a picture for your mind is kind of like these plots. And it's showing the difference between um, the data trust and how much people are willing. I think how much people are willing to share and how much they trust the organization would be a good way of describing that gap? Is
3: yeah, that, so, is that so great, th- Nathan? this was some research that was done by Ipsos Mori. First of all, I think it was in 2014, that, that graph, actually. And it was the first time that we observed a gap between data trust, so the, the trust that people place in an organization's data practices and therefore, like, how how willing they are to share, uh, and brand trust. And sometimes they're actually different because you might trust your your bank, as an example, to help you do certain things with your money, I suppose, or get a home loan or whatever. But if they came along and asked you, hey, can I have your fitness data, it's very unlikely that you would give it to them. And uh, as a result of some rather unfortunate things that have been happening over the last four years, that data trust gap has actually increased.
1: And uh, go into some of these principles that you Mm. think are really important. You've you've written this piece about sort of the six principles. Yeah, sure. What are the kind of like founding one or two that are really crucial, do you think?
3: Well... Like a tiny little bit of context, um, there's this there's this thing called privacy by design, and it's actually been around for about twenty years. It was developed by Dr. Anne Kavalkian uh, in Canada, uh, and a lot of organisations are practicing it. But uh, and and. Privacy by Design has seven foundational principles as well, so we, we went one shorter. Uh, mm. the, the problem with this, even though there's been amazing work done, uh, risk reduction, increased trust, uh, a really demonstrable return on investment for organisations who proactively protect and respect their customers' privacy, it still hasn't become the de facto model. And actually, even those organisations who are doing the right things, that that stuff that they're doing, it never makes its way to customers. And we were like that's strange. Like, if you're doing all this good stuff, like, let your customers know about it mm. embed it into the experience. And so we looked at the, the sort of general person to organisation relationship. Like, you know, there's a beginning, there's a middle, and there's an end. And we looked at things like relational design. We looked at um, different research into trust and privacy. And we kind of said, you know, like, what are the key things that, that organisations should be thinking about? More in terms of how they treat the human beings that they're serving. That could be a citizen, a patient, a student, or a, a, you know, a paying customer. Uh, and we developed the six principles off the back of that. And and what we're doing with organisations at the moment is going, all right, this, this kind of sets our frame of reference. It enables us to challenge our thinking, evolve our thinking, uh, and then we try and put it into practice as effectively as we can. And, you know, we're seeing things like really interesting privacy notices being developed that are actually meaningful, they're comprehensible. I'd love to talk to Lauren about the comprehension thing. We're seeing terms and conditions that are being radically rethought, like videos, iconography, um, interaction design rather than 8,000 words, we're seeing products that have data management features built into them. So, like, it's literally as easy as toggling left or toggling right to share or stop sharing your data. Um, And so, the the principles are important, but I think what we do with them matters more.
0: Mm.
2: Can you talk to us a little bit about this last one, this saying goodbye, make endings matter? I'm really intrigued by that one.
3: So... This was actually inspired by and, and this this chap's not going to be listening I don't think. Joe McLeod, uh re- really interesting dude. He's a British guy and he lives in Sweden. He wrote a book called Ends. Um and he's just fascinated by endings and the re- like the ethnographic research and stuff that that he did lead, like that that enabled him to write this book is just amazing and the dude is awesome to listen to. Um so Joe if if you're listening that's a bit of a plug mate, but <laughs> I sort of became fascinated by it as well, and I, I thought about the fact that every time I've off boarded from a brand, it's been a really bad experience, and I've actually left like thinking, I don't want to tell any. Like the only thing I'm going to tell my friends and family is like that was terrible. They they didn't even treat me like a human. And as part of the General Data Protection Regulation, uh, data subjects like people that reside in the European Economic Area, like citizens um, and residents, they have new rights and and. You know, part of that is the right to portability, which is a form of an end, um, the right to erasure, etc. And so, in the context of data, uh, we believe that an organisation should be able to really seamlessly offboard their customers, and that might be offboard them from one product to another, or it might be actually like enabling them to package their data up uh, into a really beautiful um, and, and seamless experience, and utilise that data in the context of another relationship, so that the customer can continue getting value. Hmm. Interesting
2: um I have one more question of uh, just about your idea of like these principles and this this bigger idea of how we design for privacy and for um data trust um How does that relate to like literally storing the data like are you advocating for don't store it if it if it isn't crucial like is there kind of a an architecture piece to this
3: absolutely so so we sort of work at the intersection of my word. Ethics, um, privacy and information strategy broadly, technology, and then sort of user research and design. Um, data minimization is actually one of the foundational principles of privacy by design. So it's been, it's been encoded for effectively 20 years. Uh, and the GDPR has brought that to life from a regulatory perspective in a really meaningful way um, through purpose limitation. So organizations, like, if they can't Lawfully justify that they have a right to process this data, then they shouldn't do it. Um, but we kind of think it goes further than that. There are interesting things happening in distributed ledger tech and personal information management services and privacy-enhancing technologies that might mean, in the future, you know, the, the way that organisations have been able to exchange data via APIs, application programming interfaces, people have the same capabilities. Um, and, you know, that might mean that we don't actually have to store data. We just get the ability to utilise it, generate a heap of value. And a lot of those privacy and security risks that we're succumbing to on a daily basis at the moment, they don't necessarily go away, but they're reduced quite significantly.
1: Yeah. If, um, I mean, in the in kind of the limited dealings I've had with organisations with data, I tend to think we we're, we're not very good at storing it maybe even beyond Australia but certainly in Australia um, we, we leak it quite a bit we don't use it very effectively like mm. um, I don't know I got in a Twitter thing with Atlassian the other day where they're like <laughs> um, <laughs> as a user of possibly this product or possibly this product or possibly this product or possibly this product there's something that you might need to do about something I was like are you kidding me like you, you guys are minted like you should know this stuff by now
2: um, so how do, you, how do you not know which product I use I'm your customer
1: <laughs> <laughs> I know it was, it was interesting mm. but um what are some basic things that um, organizations who are looking after our data should be should be doing? Like what's a, a minimum standard that you would think is important today?
3: So so I think organizations should build what we've come to reference as a data trust stack and that means data ethics forms the foundation and it's not just having principles but an operationalization framework like how do you make ethical data practices part of everyone's business as usual? And then on top of that, you know Bringing that further to life through your workf- workflows, you know, your practices, your systems is privacy by design. Again, this stuff exists. Like We, we can operationalize it quite mm. quickly, and there's 20 years to support that. And, and then on top of that, it's about, all right, how do we bring all that amazing stuff that we've done to our customers? And that's where data trust by design closes a bit of a gap that exists today. Mm. So we think that it has to be a strategic exercise. It has to be proactive very few organisations, even though they're they're inherently data driven, like that's actually their business. Uh, very few organisations have information strategies. Mm. I actually, sat down with the former privacy commissioner here in uh, for the Victorian government. At, he left about a year ago. Super smart dude. Uh, caught up with him yesterday, um, and just the perspective that he was sharing that. that there's, there is really a lack of maturity. Mm. Uh, I think what's happening and, and what's been really visible to, to me being in the studio tonight is that this is becoming topical. And as a result of that, uh, what we're starting to see is the investment from an organisational standpoint and hopefully from the regulator's standpoint as well. We're starting to see investments shift away from traditional areas of um, focus within an organisational context to privacy, security and trust. Hmm. and And for me that that 's probably all we can hope for right now and i'm i'm, I'm very hopeful uh, in fact i you know i 'm really banking on it literally that that we can move forward positively
1: uh, if you're interested in uh, doing some work in this space um, greater than uh, greater than X, um, you can look them up um, and they 've got uh, a bunch of stuff there going on but um, yeah Nathan, thanks for coming in and having a chat to us about it thanks guys
2: so we have a fun little promo code, if you liked that chat we had with Nathan, they actually have a pretty cool ebook available um, and you can get it for free if you go to their website, Designing for Trust, and look for the Data Transparency Playbook. Um, you can get it for free by putting in the code greater than trust, all one word, no spaces, and get it for free.
1: Here's another, um, uh, another interesting thing that we did want to let you know about. Um, IRC um, turns 30. Um, do you have any IRC experiences that you want to relay to us? It was it was not really such a huge thing for me, but IRC, I respect it from Internet other relay
2: chat, oh, mm-hmm. nice little pun there, Warren.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Oh, it's just the old, you know, it's like the oldest chat experience most of us had. So hmm. I don't honestly, I didn't use it much. In fact, I think I discovered after MSN Messenger. Like I think I discovered it later on in my tech journey because hmm. I knew other devs who were nostalgic about it, and then they started showing me, and I was like, oh, it's like Vim cross chat. It's so
1: cute <laughs> um 30 so how yeah. time has uh, has flown um i did want to let you know about um uh, an interesting event um uh, that's going on at uh, m pavilion um Perfectionism. Um, The pressure to be perfect. I feel like that's a a very tech topical uh, topic. Um, So it's a free event um, and it's a talk by um, David Irving, Margaret Osborne, um, uh, a host of of good people and um, singers and musicians. Um, The discussion will explore how perfectionism exists both positively and negatively across a range of different industries, um, from the online space to, to all parts of our lives. So... Definitely worth getting down um, and checking out. Um, another thing that was um, kind of funny and, and, uh, and weird in a good way, I came across today. Um, the opposite
2: what, of perfectionism, hey?
1: Opposite of perfectionism, but also kind of like very elegant in its own way. Um, the idea of what happens when you feed um, philosophy um, and fortunes to um, AI. Um, Alexander Rebin um, has done a lot of these types of projects. He's done a great kind of um, AI-generated TED Talk, which is really um, interesting. Um, but I think the we tend to think of these these products as very sterile and uh, and quite dry. And when you actually see some of these things that come back with these quirks and, and kind of misuses of language and so forth, I feel a little bit more affection for the idea of kind of algorithmic um, intelligence. Um, yeah,
2: there's there's some pretty interesting ones in here. It's 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 sort of feeding it. Uh, a bunch of philosophy texts and then coming out with these pithy little statements and none of them are none of them are actual quotes and none of them are maybe like intentionally deep and meaningful and yet somehow they are like i love this one being being happy is not as serious as it appears that's true i'm not sure what it means but it feels right
1: what are some of the other ones
2: oh um a friend is a wonderful invention but then again Mm. dot 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 tape or or ooh here's another good one the first man gets the oyster the second man gets
1: Actually, it's the second Mouse Gets.
2: Oh, the second Mouse Gets. Oh, yes, that's even better. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, some of these are available for sale as well. They're actually, um, I think, still printing them, um, mm. which is great. Um, thanks for being a great audience tonight. We've really enjoyed chatting to you about um, data, privacy, protection, um, all of those things. Um, thank you uh, very much to our guests uh, for stopping by and having a chat with us tonight. Thank you to Nathan from Greater The Next and also to Lauren from uh, Consumer Policy Research Centre. Anthony Crew is coming up now with International